The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next and final passage we come to is Genesis 50, verses 15 through 26. If you have your pew Bibles, it's on page 44. It says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that he did to him, or that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word. Jeremy. Let's pray together. Father, we are told that uh, there are different kinds of soils on which the seed of your word falls. Thorny soil, rocky soil, soil on a path, and good fertile soil. And it's only when the seed falls on that last kind of soil that it actually produces fruit. So please, Help us to be that fertile soil this morning so that the seed of your word can take root and bear fruit in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever tragedy strikes, there seems to be something in the human heart that yearns to understand why tragedies like that happen. Right now, for example, I'm sure the biggest thing that's on all of our minds is the, uh, 
terrible things that have been going on in Israel and the atrocities that have been committed even against civilians. And these acts are just, honestly, they're so horrendous. I have trouble even looking at the news headlines coming out of that area of the world these past few weeks. And whenever something like that happens, it's natural for us to wonder why, right? Like, we want answers. We want to know why a a good God would allow such terrible acts of evil in the world. And, of course, this applies not only to disturbing global events, but also to the suffering and difficulties we experience personally in our own lives. Like, we want to know why. Like, why did God allow our loved one to pass away at such a young age? Or why did God allow us to, you know, get in that car accident that's left us with severe back pain? Why did God allow us to experience that miscarriage? Or be a victim of a crime? Or lose our job? Why did he allow our children to become addicted to drugs? Or our family to be torn apart by conflict? We yearn to understand these things. It's also worth pointing out that the secular worldview that predominates our society isn't any help at all in our quest to understand these things and, and the purpose of them. Like, it has no satisfactory answers for us. According to the secular worldview and its naturalistic assumptions, even the greatest tragedies that we experience are just random occurrences. They're just random, you know, chemicals uh, hitting off of each other. They're, They're just these random things that have no meaning. Like, we happen to live in a chaotic universe that's filled with all kinds of tragedies and hardships, and and these things lack any purpose at all. So the only thing we can really do, I guess, is to try our best to suck it up and deal with it. Like, that is all the secular worldview has for us. Thankfully, though, the Bible offers us a much different perspective as we can see quite clearly in our main passage here of Genesis 50, verses 15 through 26, which, as Jeremy mentioned, is indeed our last passage on our journey through Genesis. Uh, This passage is incredibly comforting and helpful, uh, whether you're currently experiencing suffering or maybe you're trying to minister to someone who's experiencing suffering or maybe you just want to be prepared for whatever the future has. To remind you of what's been happening here. We've been reading about a man named Joseph and how Joseph's brothers were so jealous of him that they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And yet Joseph eventually rose to become the second in command of Egypt and ended up rescuing his family from the severe famine that was taking place in that region of the world. Joseph was actually able to arrange for his whole family, including his father Jacob And all of his brothers and their wives and children, numbering 70 people in all, to move from Canaan to Egypt. He then provided for all of their needs for the next 17 years. Eventually, though, their father Jacob died. And that's where the story picks up today in the middle of Genesis 50. So look with me at verses 15 through 18. 
when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So Joseph's brothers are still very conscious of the way they mistreated him all those years ago by selling him into slavery in Egypt. By this point, it had now been nearly 40 years since they did that, but they still remember it as if it were yesterday. And we can see in these verses that they're concerned that Joseph also remembers it as if it were yesterday as well. Now that their father Jacob has died, uh, Joseph's brothers are basically freaking out because they're afraid that Joseph will now get his revenge. They suspect that he's just been biding his time for all these years and is now ready to pay them back with interest for everything they did to him. And so they try everything they can think of to convince him not to harm them. In verses 16 and 17, we see that they, I think, they make up a story about their father Jacob supposedly uh, requesting from his deathbed that Joseph forgive his brothers. Uh, I don't know about you, that, but that sounds kind of fishy to me. Uh, if I were Joseph, I would probably be wondering... Like, if my father really requested that, that I do that, then why didn't he make that request known to me? And so I think we can safely say that what Joseph's uh, brothers claim here about their father in these verses is totally fabricated. And uh, notice how they even bring God into the picture in, uh, at the end of verse 17 there, asking Joseph to please forgive the transgression. Here's how they refer to themselves. Forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And it's like they're saying, remember, Joseph, the God of your father is watching everything you do, right? So you better behave. And then in verse 18, they fall down at Joseph's feet and basically beg for their lives, saying to Joseph, behold, we are your servants. But look how Joseph responds. In verses 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph assures his brothers that he's not out to get revenge. The primary reason he gives for this, as we see in verse 19, is that getting revenge would be putting himself in the place of God and taking for himself a prerogative that belongs to God alone. And Joseph's absolutely right about that. In Romans 12, 19, 
Uh, for example, the Apostle Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Then back in our main passage, the second reason Joseph gives for not seeking revenge is his understanding that God was actually working in a masterful way through the evil action of Joseph's brothers to accomplish his own good purposes. Joseph says to his brothers in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That statement sums up just about not only this passage, but really pretty much everything throughout the past 13 chapters. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Notice that Joseph doesn't deny the evil that his brothers did to him. He doesn't even downplay it. Instead, he plainly acknowledges that his brothers indeed committed evil against him. In fact, he actually says that they meant evil, right? They didn't just get unlucky and do something that happened to be evil. They had evil intentions. They didn't Uh, that they meant to do evil against him. Yet Joseph says he's able to forgive him, to to forgive them because he understands that God had a good purpose for everything that they did. And that purpose, Joseph says, is to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. God orchestrated a series of events that culminated in Joseph being put into a position where he could preserve the lives of many people in the midst of that severe famine taking place in that region of the world. That obviously would include the people of Egypt, as well as, you know, countless people from the surrounding nations. And most importantly, it included Joseph's own family. And not only was preserving the lives of Joseph's family important as an expression of God's love for them and his faithfulness to the promises he made to Abraham, but it was also necessary for the Messiah's entry into the world hundreds of years later. God's stated plan and purpose, if you remember from the earlier chapters of Genesis, it was to bring the Messiah into the world through Abraham's descendants. God then filtered that down in the subsequent chapters of Genesis to the descendants of Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to the descendants of Isaac's son, Jacob. But that would be kind of hard to do if Jacob and his entire family starved to death, right? And uh, so the preservation of Jacob and his family was actually something that was massively significant for the entire redemptive plan of God. So God actually had multiple good purposes for, uh, that, that he was accomplishing through the evil deed of Joseph's brothers. Right? God was preserving the lives of people of Egypt, preserving the lives of people from the surrounding nations, preserving the lives of people from Joseph's own family, and lastly, preserving the line of people through whom the Messiah would one day come. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, 
God meant for good. That's the main idea of this passage. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And the way this passage connects to our lives is that God uses difficult things to accomplish his good purposes like all the time. We actually talked extensively about this just a few weeks ago in our examination of Genesis 45. In that message and in that passage, we observed God's invisible hand at work in all the events of Joseph's life in order to accomplish his will. So I'm not going to repeat what I said in that message. Instead, I'd like to take the discussion one step further today and focus on the why of suffering and evil. You know, we've already established that God's accomplishing his own good purposes. But what exactly are those purposes? You know, Joseph says that God meant it for good and goes on to explain what that looked like in his own situation, but what does it look like in our lives today? What good things is God accomplishing through the difficulties we encounter? Now, before we go any further, I want to give you a, a brief caveat here and make sure we have realistic expectations. No matter how much we study what the Bible says about this, there will still be plenty about the difficult things that we encounter that we just don't understand this side of heaven. God says in Isaiah 55, 9, that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the majority of what God's accomplishing through the difficulties he allows us to experience will remain shrouded in mystery until we get to heaven. I like the way John Piper says it. He says that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might understand three of them, <laughs> right? So my goal in this message isn't to comprehensively uh, explain all of God's purposes for life's difficulties, but rather to simply pull back the curtain a little bit and give us a glimpse of some of the things that God uses difficulties to accomplish. And we won't be able to spend very long on any one of these uh, since I actually have uh, seven of them to share with you. So seven ways in which God uses difficulties to accomplish good. So uh, you know, make sure your seatbelts are securely fastened and uh, as we move through these rather quickly. Uh, the first way God uses difficulties is to humble us and bring us to an understanding of our weakness. God uses difficulties to humble us and bring us to an understanding of our weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. So God saw that Paul's heart was becoming proud because of the incredible spiritual revelations he was being given. And therefore, allowed Paul to suffer some kind of ongoing trial, referred to here simply as a thorn in the flesh, in order to humble Paul and show him his weakness. And that's the effect that suffering has on us as well. It actually has the effect not only of exposing our general weakness as human beings, but also, honestly, all kinds of specific sins in our lives as well. One author named Kevin Haloran writes that suffering is a window into the soul. It shows us who we really are, what we're trusting in, and where our hope is found. It often reveals the idols of our hearts. And another author named Paul Tripp writes, we like to tell ourselves that we're spiritually okay, but suffering exposes the bad things that still live inside us. In our pain, we are irritable, envious, demanding, impatient, doubtful, and angry. Suffering doesn't make us this way, but it draws out what's been inside us already, he writes. The way I picture it, it's kind of like a tube of toothpaste. Right? When you squeeze a toothpaste tube, what's on the inside comes out. And likewise, when we experience suffering, it often reveals what's in our hearts. Moving forward, a second way uh, God uses difficulties is to break us of our self-sufficiency and teach us to rely on him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So the afflictions Paul and his companions experienced in Asia were so extreme that they led them to despair of life itself. But those afflictions had a purpose, right? And that purpose was to make Paul and his companions rely not on themselves, but on God. In this way, afflictions function as a kind of refining fire in our lives. Just as fire is often used to burn away the uh, impurities from gold and other precious metals, afflictions burn away the impurities of self-reliance and self-sufficiency from our hearts. You might also compare the afflictions we experience to a master sculptor chiseling away from a large stone everything that's not going to be a part of the sculpture he's created. That's what God's doing when he allows trials in our lives. Right? He's chiseling away everything that doesn't belong there 
in order to create a masterpiece. Then third, and closely related, God uses difficulties to foster growth toward spiritual maturity. James 1, 2 through 4 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, obviously, counting it all joy when we experience trials, at first seems radically counterintuitive. But notice here, James doesn't say to rejoice in the trials themselves. He says to rejoice in what the trials are accomplishing in our lives. They're producing steadfastness and ultimately leading us further in our lifelong journey toward being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Like trials are producing virtues in our lives that simply can't be produced any other way. Just like a diamond can't be produced apart from extraordinarily high levels of heat and pressure. Godly character can't be produced apart from the intense heat and pressure of adversity. This same basic idea is also taught quite famously in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So notice that Paul doesn't just say all things work together for good and then, you know, leave it at that. He goes on to define what that good is, doesn't he? It's being conformed to the image of Jesus. You know, many times we imagine that God working everything together for our good means, like we, we translate that God working everything together for our comfort. Right? I mean, what greater good could there be, right? <laughs> being comfortable you know, certainly sounds pretty good to me. And yet that's not what Paul says here, is it? He actually says something very different. That God causes all things to work together, not necessarily for our comfort, but rather for something that's higher and greater and more glorious than that. Namely, to conform us to the image of Jesus. God's primary concern isn't our comfort, but rather our Christ-likeness. That's why God does what he does and allows what he allows. He's molding us and shaping us to be more like Jesus. And when we begin to understand that that's God's primary goal, all of a sudden the difficult things we encounter can start to make a lot more sense. Not perfect sense, but a lot more sense. Then moving on to number four, God uses difficulties to lead us toward greater satisfaction in him. In the book of Lamentations, as the prophet Jeremiah is sitting in the ashes and the rubble of the fallen Jerusalem, 
He talks about how great his afflictions are. That's why the book's called Lamentations. He's lamenting about this tragedy that's just taken place. Yet in the middle of his lamenting, listen to what he writes in Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Don't you just love that phrase? The Lord is my portion. That's what sticks out to me. Trials have a way of reminding us of just how true that is. You know, as all the things that we typically delight in are stripped away from us one by one, we hopefully begin to realize if we have a regenerate heart, if we have a changed, saved heart, we hopefully begin to realize that those things aren't essential to our joy. Like, as long as we have Jesus, we have all that we need to have real joy and like, fullness and satisfaction. You know, as I once heard it said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing else equals everything. Have you gotten there yet? Can you say with Jeremiah, the Lord is my portion. And fifth, God uses difficulties to prepare us for ministry to others. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, there's a purpose statement, right? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, about a year and a half ago, a woman in our church had uh, a miscarriage. And uh, that was obviously a very difficult thing for her. And yet, God comforted her and enabled her to support several other women in our church who have had miscarriages in the past six months or so. That's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. The trials we experience prepare us, and in a certain sense, qualify us to engage in particular forms of ministry to others. Uh, you know, when the two to three women who experienced miscarriages here in the past six months or so shared with me what had happened, like, I obviously tried my best to, to comfort them. You know, I prayed with them and listened and offered words of comfort. And yet I also uh, ultimately connected them with that other woman who had previously experienced that because I knew that she would just be able to relate to them in a unique way and to comfort them in a way that was beyond anything that I was capable of doing. Paul Tripp writes, we all know 
that we don't own the blessings in our lives, that we're meant to pass them forward into the lives of others. But this passage, talking about the same verse we're looking at from 2 Corinthians, this passage confronts us with the fact that even our sufferings belong to the Lord for his use. Like the Apostle Paul, God will give us stories to tell. Stories of how God met us in the darkest moments of panic and doom. He gives us stories to tell about how he lifts us up, gives us hope, brings peace to our hearts, and meets our needs. So what stories has God given you of his faithfulness and goodness and comfort? in the midst of trials, that you can now share with others as a source of comfort to them. Moving forward, a sixth way that God uses difficulty is to display his power and glory. In John 9, 1 through 3, we read about a conversation between Jesus and his disciples about a blind man. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Just think about that. Like the reason this man was blind from birth, Jesus says, is that the works of God might be displayed in him. Like God allowed this man to be born blind. And be afflicted with blindness throughout his life so that one day Jesus could heal him and thereby display his divine glory. Similarly, God displays his glory in our afflictions as well. He does this at times by delivering us from those afflictions. Sometimes even in a very dramatic way. And he also displays his glory by sustaining us in the midst of those afflictions. I've heard a number of stories of people who were formerly very skeptical about Christianity becoming much more open to the gospel and even embracing the gospel when they saw how a Christian in their life responded to tragedy. When they saw the unexplainable peace that their Christian friend had and the way their friend's faith in God helped them get through an unimaginably difficult experience, it had a profound effect on the person who was formerly skeptical. It was a powerful gospel witness to that person. And so God displayed his glory through the suffering of those Christians. And then finally, a seventh way God uses difficulties is to turn our attention toward future glory. In Romans 8.18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he then describes in verse 23 how these sufferings produce within us a groaning and a yearning for that future glory. Suffering for the Christian is a very direct and straightforward reminder that this world is not our home. Instead, as Paul says elsewhere, 
Our citizenship is in heaven. So the more we suffer during our brief time on this earth, the more we should find ourselves longing for that time in the future when, as Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe away every tear from every eye. Friends, a time is coming when suffering and grief and pain and turmoil and disease and violence won't even be words in our vocabulary. And every difficulty we experience now should lead us to set our hearts even more on the glories that we'll enjoy then. So those are the seven ways God uses difficulties to accomplish good. And and thinking back to our main passage, just as Joseph had confidence that God was using everything his brothers did to accomplish his own good purposes, God likewise is using the difficulties we experience to accomplish wonderful and beautiful things. And hopefully going through these seven specific things we've gone through is a helpful reminder to us that we really can trust God. God loves us. He knows what he's doing. Our suffering isn't without purpose, but rather is an instrument in the hands of a loving and wise and sovereign God to accomplish his own perfect will. And as we consider how God used evil to accomplish good back in the days of Joseph, he should also lead us to consider the greatest and climactic example of God using evil to accomplish good, which, of course, is the gospel. The gospel is the message of Jesus coming to this earth, living a perfectly sinless life, and then dying, allowing himself voluntarily to be crucified on a cross. Like, even though he had done nothing wrong, the sinless Son of God was slaughtered on a Roman cross. That, without question, is the greatest and most horrendous act of evil that's ever taken place in the history of the world. And yet, God was at work through it all. We learn in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So there you have it. The greatest evil in the history of the world accomplishing the greatest good in the history of the world. When our sins separated us from a holy God and made us deserving of eternal condemnation, right? We see here, Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. By dying on the cross, Jesus suffered the judgment our sins deserved. See, someone had to suffer that judgment. And typically, of course, that someone would be us. And yet in his love, Jesus stood in our place and suffered on our behalf. And three days later, he resurrected 
from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will turn away from their sins and put their trust in him for that rescue. That involves acknowledging not only our sin, but also our utter helplessness to save ourselves from that punishment we deserve. And then placing our full confidence in Jesus and him alone for rescue. And that, honestly, is the most important thing we could ever do because that's what determines where we'll spend eternity. And yet our need to consider the gospel doesn't end at conversion. We also need to keep the gospel fresh in our minds throughout our lives as Christians. And there are numerous reasons for that, but one of them, as we've seen, is that it's the gospel, this gospel message of Jesus that provides us with the most powerful picture we'll ever see of God using evil to accomplish good. And the way I like to think about it is that if God was even able to use the horrendous evil that took place on the cross to accomplish good, how much more can he use the lesser evil, the lesser suffering, the lesser difficulties that we experience to accomplish good as well? If he could do the greater, certainly he can do the lesser. And so we want to keep that gospel message at the very forefront of our minds. 